Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another patron episode of 80s All Over. And I'm joined by my friend Drew McGetty, ready to rumble McWeenie. <laughs> that is my actual legal name. It is. And we are here to do an audio commentary slash 90 minute discussion for a film that is near and dear to both of our hearts. Drew, why don't you do the honors? I'm very excited. Today we are doing The Dead Zone by David Cronenberg. And uh, if you have the film, Scott's going to tell you how to sync it up. Yeah, right now we have um, the film paused on the Paramount screen. It says Paramount, Gulf Western. And when I count down from three, you're just going to hit play and we're going to go from there. So three, two, one, play. All right. Um, yeah, I'm Drew, excited. Drew, what do you know the- about Paramount Pictures, Drew? Talk about Paramount. Uh, Paramount was at this point that now talk about Dino De Laurentiis, Drew. Talk about him. So Dino De Laurentiis <laughs> was at this point. Now the dead zone. Let's talk about him. Um, no, I'm sorry. Where do the, we start, Drew? Where do we want to start? Well, I think I think we should start with Dino De Laurentiis um, okay. because at this point he was trying to figure out how to make the jump from being thought of as kind of a schlock producer who had had some big budget junk into actually a producer who's going to build a long-term sustainable body of work. And Dino De Laurentiis Productions was up and running, and I think he was really trying to carve out a new reputation for himself. And part of that was in reaching out for better material and in hiring better people. And, you know, I you can't knock Dino for his hustle. And I, I know we're both familiar with John Belushi's impression of Dino De Laurentiis and I think for a lot of people, that's how they thought of him in the late 70s as this crazy sort of exploitation guy who was spending a ton of money on stuff. But The Dead Zone's a really well put together movie, and it went through a lot of early production stuff that it wasn't necessarily going to be this film. And I'm, I'm delighted that it is because this film is great. I love this opening credit sequence, how the, the title slowly uh, morphs out and in, in, in the background is this beautiful pastoral uh, uh, landscape. This is uh, um, the titles here were done by a company called R. Greenberg Associates, and they were uh, famous Kamen. for it. Yeah, yeah sorry. they were famous for stuff like Alien, uh, Altered States. This they did these beautiful title sequences that uh, were old fashioned optical titles, and almost every one of the ones they did you remember because they are so distinct. Like this, I agree with you. This is one of my favorites, and the moment you realize what they're doing. The first time you see it, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I I adore this movie. Um, I had been a Cronenberg fan uh, like you before this was even out. I didn't know much of his work, but I believe by that point, uh, I didn't see this in theaters. I saw this probably 85, 86 on VHS. And uh, by that point, I was already crazy in love with The Brood and Scanners. And I'm pretty sure I'd seen Videodrome by that point. Uh, so just the idea of... Cronenberg plus King uh, was very enticing. Yeah, yeah, and this was important for him because Videodrome, while we love it, and I know we talked about it on the, the, uh, you know, a couple of times during the 82 episodes, 
Uh, Videodrome was a disaster for him and a real step back in terms of what he could get made because that was his universal movie. That was his giant. I'm going to prove that I can bring this Cronenberg thing that I do to the mainstream. Uh, It's just so it's so easy to admire Cronenberg for that, though, because, you know, you and I are both uh, screenwriters of a sort. And if somebody uh, if we made Videodrome, we'd consider that like a giant win. Uh, and then, you know, it's considered kind of a, a backdoor win because it didn't really make a lot of money and didn't at the time. Uh, I think that everybody who supported and uh, bankrolled Videodrome is probably happy about it now. Yeah, but at the time they took a hit and and Cronenberg, I think, you know, like Carpenter, then kind of had to struggle to figure out, OK, well, what's next? And I think it's interesting. Both guys used uh, Stephen King as a sort of way to. Get grounded again. And Stephen King right now, this is 83. Stephen King's still kind of um, untainted in terms of film. It's gone very well for Stephen King so far by this point. Yeah, we'll get to the uh, history in a minute. That's one of my favorite topics. Here is uh, Christopher Walken in a rare lead performance. He's fantastic. Uh, What else did we see him in in a lead? Oh, Dogs of War. He was a lead in that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I love his haircut right here, but you know, he's supposed to look but that's like kind of, I like that. Yeah. I like that. He's nerdy. Johnny Smith. That yeah. He is small town teacher, nothing cool about him. And man, we've, we talked about this. Chris Walken, absolutely terrific choice. There's something haunted about him that works in this film. Stephen King was nuts though. The ideas like for who he wanted, I, I, I read this in Fangoria recently and I cannot get my head around it. His number one choice for this movie, if King could have casted himself, Bill Murray was the guy that he wanted more than anybody. And that's who he saw in his head. I can't picture that movie. Mm. Bill Murray is Johnny Smith. In 1983, uh, yeah. picture pre-Ghostbusters Bill Murray as Johnny oh, Smith. I just accidentally hit back on my r- remote. So now I'm 10 seconds behind everyone else looking at Brooke Adams smiling on a roller coaster. God, what a face she has. Look at her eyes. I love that eye trick she does in... um body snatchers she does mm-hmm. that thing with her eyes where she they wiggle squiggle back and forth yeah uh she's got great eyes she's got uh, she's just a very good actor very earthy she seems she's like, a great you know, yeah great match for him in this film too yes very like i don't want to i don't mean it in a bad way but like small town kind of you know quiet shy librarian but she's a smart sweet woman but uh you know you, you want to do the shorthand with these characters and make them likable as quickly as you can and uh that's not difficult with Brooke Adams she's very I likable. think that's that's another thing that this movie does really well that Cronenberg hadn't done up until this point Cronenberg loved his weirdos he loved painting on the fringe like all of his movies before this whether it's Rabid or uh Scanners or The Brute they're movies about people on the margins people who were really weird and strange and broken this movie opens in the most normal David Cronenberg world we have ever seen by this point. Yeah. yeah. And I love and that because he does a nice job of painting why this life matters to Johnny before he loses it. You know, Drew, I, I watching this again and I again watched it like a month ago. Uh, I'm struck by the the long term discussion of horror v. thriller. And I know that you and I both agree that they're all under the same umbrella. If somebody is trying to shock or thrill or, or make you feel suspense or intensity or, or fear or shock, that's some division of horror. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people now would watch a film like The Dead Zone and say, oh, it's definitely maybe a psychological thriller, an occult thriller, or ESP. But I don't know, given the nature of this movie, if people would consider it a horror film or not. I think I think the ending of this film qualifies it as a horror film because it's it's from that era where 
people were still unafraid to leave you bummed out at the end of a horror film. And like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and it's great that Brooke Adams is in both of these, this movie gets to a place where there's an inevitability to the ending. It is a satisfying ending, but it oh, is it's a, a phenomenal bummer. ending. It's yeah. a real bummer as, hey, as, we're in terms get of what to he it. gets. But so, the, poet, the, the poetry of the ending is that, you know, he sacrifices himself for the much, much greater good. So true, but I, but it's I think a there's wonderful something ending, to I think, me that yeah. is horrific about a guy who gets locked into through nothing he does on his own. This this one awful night that he has gets locked into this path where he has to make that choice. So that's a well, true. When's, when's the last time you read this novel do you, do you, recently or no? Uh, I read it probably about eight or nine years ago. And I was can, can you recall off the top of your head any major changes? Um, the, the novel simply takes more time. The novel does a, a better job of sort of showing how hard it is for Johnny to reintegrate. I'll tell you what the novel, what was interesting about my first exposure to this book, when I fell in love with King, this book was the moment where I realized what game he was playing with the creation of the larger Stephen King world. Up until then, I had not twigged to that. And this book, right at the beginning, has a reference oh. to Cujo. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. I I, I like that. I, I kind of. I think I kind of took that as an in joke. But I don't think I really got the larger King universe until I read Needful Things. That's no, when I got. Yeah to, yeah. to me, it was that that just the implication in this book that King was setting everything in one world. That was really exciting, and I think that might have been the moment where I went from being a King fan to being a rabid King fan. So. Yeah, they, and watching sort of Hollywood grapple with him and watching how they were treating the adaptations, it was exciting. It was a really exciting time to be a fan of his work. And this book was, I thought, as lean and mean and great as anything he wrote in that era. That's a crazy shot of the truck barreling down the road. Yeah, sideways. Yeah, yeah. sideways, yeah. And, uh, like, how do you not see that? Move! Oh, Johnny. Oh, it's a good stunt. Not overdone, but a good stunt. Um, I uh, what I what I really like about this adaptation is how brisk it is. And Jeffrey Boehm, who uh, wrote oh, the don't. the final draft of this, um, I really can't say enough good about Boehm. And yeah, by all accounts, this script was developed by uh, Dino De Laurentiis, David Cronenberg, yeah. producer Deborah Hill, Je- producer Jeffrey Chernoff, and Jeffrey Boehm. Although he he received sole screenwriting credit and. Uh, it's a wonderful screenplay, whether you take it as an adaptation or uh, or as just an original screenplay. However you take it, it's a wonderful screenplay. Well, he, and I, you know, a lot of times when we credit screenwriters, we're crediting the final film versus what we read on the page. And I've gone back and there are certain writers I was fascinated with and Bohm was one of them. Uh, I, I want to give this guy props. He was terrific yeah. on the page and he was economical and he was smart. And he was what you want from a screenwriter when he takes a piece of material he strips it down to the pieces that you need and then figures out how to make it breathe. Um, it, it's so hard when you're adapting a novel because you think you can just put the whole thing in there. And obviously you can't, man. You are condensing no matter what. And yep, yep. he really knew how to distill it to the things that work and never make it feel rushed and never make it feel like he was just hustling through the points of the story. It's... That yep. is not an easy skill set, man. Uh, the Jeffrey Boehm unfortunately passed away way too young. He uh, died of a lung disease uh, in 19... What was it? I'm sorry. 
Uh, I'm sorry, he died in 2000 at age 53. Wanted to yeah. get that right. Uh, this is his second screenplay after Straight Time from 78. <coughs> then he adapted this. Then his next screenplay, no, worked on it, didn't get credited, Lethal Weapon. After that, he wrote, or co-wrote, Inner Space, The Lost Boys, Funny Farm, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2, Lethal Weapon 3, and The Phantom. Yeah, he was uh, really that, on, on the God, page. Just was, imagine if he hadn't passed away, he'd have 10, 10, 15, 25 more credits, and half of them would be great adventure movies or comedies or action movies. He just got popcorn. He got it. He got yep. what people liked about big blockbusters and comedies and action. He got it. And it's just, just I, I, every time I see one of his movies, I, I uh, feel a little bittersweet tinge because uh, I think, the guy I think he could have done a lot, lot more. One of the greatest compliments that anybody paid to this screenplay was Stephen King actually said to Cronenberg that he thought it was a better piece of work. And King is one of those guys who will tell you if he, oh, yeah. if you think he said the same thing about uh, Shawshank. He has said it repeatedly. And this is one of those where this he, is a guy who's not afraid to criticize yeah. Stanley Kubrick. So, I mean, if he doesn't like the movie, he's not going to blame anybody, but he's going to say this doesn't. I, I don't like this film. He'll say no, there that. was there was a move that Bohm wanted to do at the end of this that I think is a it's interesting because it kind of gets you into the commercial mind of Jeffrey Bohm. He was thinking sequel. How do you set this up for what else could you do? And his original ending, not only does Johnny live, but as he's in the hospital, he gets a vision that the Castle Rock killer did not die and is actually still out there. Oh, and that was supposed oh. to be the bump into the next film. Thank God they did not do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jeffrey Bellum, just for completion's sake, he wrote on uh, he wrote an episode of Tales from the Crypt, and he was the co-creator of a very fun cult TV show called The Adventures of Briscoe County Junior. Yeah, yeah. yeah he so, had a I real mean, this, he had a real feel for pulp and for fun. For, he had yeah. a sense of fun. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the reasons I love Interspace so much is because Boehm's screenplay is so fun, and Joe Dante just exploited and expanded the fun. Uh, and, and even though this film that we're watching is kind of melancholy and dark, it's also fun because it's clever. It's like finding a way to make like a psychic connection and make that still visually interesting. People well, have been telling hard. stories about characters with ESP since 100 years ago. That so, was one of the things that yeah. they really didn't get until kind of late in the production process as they were writing was true, the idea how of amazing, him in the visions. Yes, how amazing is the like literal transition of him? Like he doesn't see a vision, he's in the vision and you're watching it. It's like you're now watching a guy touching a bed that's on fire. He's in it, he's not seeing it and that makes it much more personal both for Johnny Smith and for the viewer. Because well, I, think, like, I think it was yeah. a major breakthrough, and it, he had a couple of there. Several of the things that really work in the film were Boehm, where he cracked them. That was one of them, and I know it tied everybody in knots up until then. Was like, how do you handle the visions? And he was the one that really said, "You've got to put him in it. You have to make him part of them." And that opened it up for Cronenberg, who immediately realized what he could do with that. The other was the idea that he figured out that instead of just making it lots of little incidents along the way, he kind of broke it into the three major things that happen. And so there's the, you know, there is the Castle Rock Killer is one section of the thing. There is Johnny before the accident and, John, and Johnny learning his powers. That's a second thing. There's the, the whole thing about Stilson is the third and him breaking it into those movements I think is the reason this movie moves like a bullet. Like he knew 
each of these things has to be a separate story that has a beginning, a middle, and a finish, and feel yeah, like true. you get this this complete something out of it. Right, and if the psychic scenes and the scary stuff are like the tent poles, uh, you know, you have to worry about the rest of the tent that goes over top of the tent poles. And a lot of like, for example, action directors don't really get that where they have five great action scenes and then everything in between those action scenes is kind of rote or dull or dry. And the, the key to good filmmaking is, yeah, OK, we can all make a good action scene, but can you make characters and a story that people care about? Well, you know, you're talking about that. And right now, uh, Johnny's literally grappling with learning what's happened to him. Think of how long this movie goes before, because we're just now getting the first vision or the first implication that there's even going to be anything weird or supernatural, and we're 15 minutes into the film. That is, by today's Hollywood standards, unthinkable. Everything's whammy beaded to hell, whereas this movie kind of really lets you feel Johnny's loss first and then introduces what that next thing is going to be. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, there's such an efficient development of Johnny. You know, you you're you're you like him, but you're you're not close to him yet when it's this happens. The, yeah. And it's, that's another brilliant thing about the Walken casting is Walken is already kind of an alien, and there is something about Walken that's weird and a little bit off-putting and kind of exciting, and he's a weirdo and. The way he, as as Smith, sort of struggles to fit back into things really brilliantly. Oh, okay. So the fire vision that he's having, I was reading a little bit about the shooting of this and the way they had this room rigged. That little girl is in a room. There's real fire. That's not like they didn't have to. They didn't fake that. That was real. But they had set it up so that she had a clear corridor. She could just get up and walk out of that room if she felt uncomfortable at all, and there was no right. fire between yeah, her and the exit. Tell. It's a little forced perspective there. It's clever. They said that. Uh, they said the Love first two that takes. shot of him looking with the bed and the. Oh, oh yeah. What a god! Oh, it's terrific. That a great shot. The first few takes, though, they said that she got up and just walked out, and yeah. they finally got her comfortable and realizing that it wasn't actually going to do anything. That's a crazy scene. Like it really does feel like that little girl is right in the middle of that fire. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, and and it just goes to show you that like Cronenberg often accused of being you know overly gory or explicit or like he does the same thing in this movie. It's just not the viscera. He's showing a little girl behind a wall of flames screaming. That's scary. It's not, you know, a body bursting open, but that's also not something light to take lightly. <laughs> I like that enough time has passed that it's funny. You mentioned Johnny's terrible hair in the beginning. I think one of the reasons it's so awful is so that you notice it. And then when you see yeah. this time has gone by, his hair is much longer now. Yeah. So and there is that feeling that he was out. Yeah. It's a subtle way to show the audience that the, of some time passing. Yeah. Um, it's his, uh, his doctor played by Herbert Lum, who, oh, the great comedy, Herbert Lum. I comedy fans will remember him. I, I, he's a little bit before my time. So when somebody says Herbert Lum, the first thing I think of without doubt is the Pink Panther. Series. Of course. And you can't yeah. not that's okay. So now this, the, the Nazi stuff that we're seeing the visions of real quick, and we'll get back to Herbert Lum. This was like a week-long shoot. This blows my mind that for something that is essentially pared down to just a couple of quick glimpses, um, that was a major shoot. This was a big film. Like, I... Cronenberg had made so many small independent films that I think when he got resources, he 
fought big. Like he did not waste the opportunity. And so you get these moments that you would have never gotten in Rabbit, never gotten in the Brood, because he realized I can do yeah, this. Yeah, these now. are I not. I mean, they're just this. inserts. They're, yeah. They are uh, inserts, but boy, oh but it boy, sells they're it. they're elaborate. This is not you know five guys in a tank. This is a yeah no. This is a giant yeah it's prog set that they built. Um, and what's an interesting point here, Drew, is that this establishes. Up to this point, we assume he can see either the present or the future, but now, obviously, he's seeing the past. Right. It's just he reads you. He can read something about you from you. And um, so going back to Herbert Lom real quick, I just wanted to say that there are actors that you get an affection for at a certain age that is unshakable. And Herbert Lom is one of those guys. The Pink Panther movies, when you refer to to great, great comedy performances... His comedy breakdown over the course of that series has to be one of my favorite things ever. And I, I do. I revere him because of that. Yeah, and that's a, it's a heartbreaking moment. We've seen that in other films where the mom has to give up her child uh, for you know during wartime. But that particular uh, uh, interpretation is it's heartbreaking. It really works. Yeah, it doesn't feel it's... like, uh, oh, here's my tragic backstory. For that quick f- 10 seconds of the movie... It's heartbreaking. It's also, that's the other reason that I think he can't just say that, oh, I, you were a child. You Seeing it like that, there is a impact. And I think Cronenberg knew that's a crazy amount of money to spend for that those visions, but it pays off in how it lands for you as a viewer. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, okay, so to this point, Drew, I would say that this is the most uh, refined or accomplished uh, or high, best budget Stephen King movie to date so far? Well, you know, they, he started with what I, I still consider a classy production. Carrie is a good-looking oh, yeah. film. Carrie's a well-made movie. Yeah. And I think there was a sense that these were kind of, you know, these were prestige, or at least prestige-minded for genre. And so there was a little bit more spin put on them. They These were not just thrown away. And I think yeah. that's what I meant by... King had this great early run where there was clearly a reverence for his work that over time kind of vanished. And I, we're still in that era here where it is considered a kind of an honor to get a Stephen King adaptation and to make it. Well, you know, and that's the, I remember charting the critical reaction to Stephen King from the beginning. It was, oh, he just makes horror stories and they might be good, but it's just horror. And that's how he was treated at the beginning. Then he tried to branch out and do more, uh, you know, mature or, or nonviolent, uh, maybe even thrillers, drama, dramatic stuff. And then it was, oh, the, the gorehound is trying to be legit. And it's like no matter what he did over the course of his career, and there are several Stephen King books I don't love, so I, he's not above criticism. But I, I don't think that authors like him, unfortunately, are really respected until they're long gone. Well, he uh, – there. It's been weird. It's been a double-edged thing. You cannot say that a guy whose first two films were directed by Brian De Palma and got an Oscar nomination and then directed by Stephen King was being treated like he was, you know, lesser. He came out of the gate hard. Oh, Stanley Kubrick, you mean. Stanley Kubrick. I'm sorry, what did I say? You said directed by King. Oh, my God. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, he started at the top. That Those were right that's, away. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. for So, for us, you know, even though we were young, I, we didn't fully grasp the difference between prestigious directors and, you know, who's Louis yeah. Teague, you know. But So, the first Stephen King adaptation was Carrie, and I agree with Drew. It's an excellent film. 
Then the novel, uh, The Shining, was adapted infamously uh, or famously. I think it's a great film. And I also, I I think it's a great film. And I also understand what bothers Stephen King about it. Completely and utterly. I get it completely. And I would love to, I would love for him to be able to see it with anybody else's eyes. Because I get why it bugs him. But, oh, my God, he's missing such a movie. Yeah. I mean, if I wrote a novel and, you know, the alcoholism of the main character was a key point, And then I thought that it was kind of shoved in the back a little. That would bother me. But I could still watch the movie and go, wow, what an epic that is. And it's uh, weird that sometimes I just plain disagree with King. I think his taste sometimes in casting in what he thinks is the good version of something. We radically disagree sometimes. And I find that fascinating considering how much I love his work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and a lot of times he'll recommend a horror film, and I'll just be like, ooh, really? Yeah. You know, I don't agree with that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay, so we had the cat, we had Carrie, and then uh, in 79, there was a very good TV adaptation called Salem's Lot, directed by Wes Craven. So, and then The Shining, and then Creepshow, and then Cujo, and then this. Wait, who did you say directed Salem? I heard that. What did I say? Wes Craven. Toby Hooper! Toby Hooper. My bad. <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's okay. Stephen King directed The Shining. Uh, the, yeah, he, he, the yeah, television. No, it's I, true. You, we're a horror and movie geeks and we're in the early 80s and we're like, hmm, The Carrie, The Shining, Salem's Lot, Creepshow, Cujo, and The Dead Zone. And then Christine. Oh my God. It was, it was genuinely, no. it felt like. Everybody got it. Everybody got it right. Everybody knew what he was. It really felt like they they were going to just keep making him right. And then, yeah, but by by like, I want to say 1989, when like stuff like, uh, oh, uh, Graveyard Shift, was that 90? Great. When, by the time those were coming out, half the reviews said, oh, my God, another Stephen King adaptation. They'll make, uh, if he wrote a shopping list, they'd make a movie out of it. And... Well, I think that's the problem is there was so much. And right after Christine, you start that run of Children of the Corn and Firestarter and Maximum Overdrive and Creepshow 2. And I mean, it really yeah, starts to get. Uh, but OK, OK, real quick, just for the sake of 80s nerdiness, we've gotten <coughs> up so far. We've gotten up to Firestarter. His next adaptations are in order. Cat's Eye, Silver Bullet, Maximum Overdrive, Stand By Me, Creepshow 2. Yep. Return to I don't count Salem's Lot. But return to Salem's Lot. Yeah. Uh, the Running Man, Pet Cemetery. Yep. So my point is, if you went from 1976 to 1990, the ma- the large majority of the films based on his films are good or very good. I the, uh, actually, I actually think like I think Children after, of the Corn is not. Maximum I think after Christine, there's one. I I I'm I'm not. Pet Cemetery, sort of. I like. Oh Pets. wow! I like Pet Cemetery. I have my problems with it. Dale McKiff is my biggest. I don't problem. love Silver Bullet. I know it's a cult item, but I'm I don't not, love I'm it. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. And, of it. and Stand by Me. Well, Stand by Me. That's the one. That's the oh. one after Christine that I think is any good for the rest of the '80s. I think the rest of them have big problems. And as much as I like parts of Pet Cemetery, that, it is so disastrously miscast. That lead, that guy, yeah, is both, a zero. Both. Dale so, McKiff and Denise Crosby, nothing personal, but yeah, they're they're uh, not it's, great. It's rough, and that's a that's such a that's hook. Him. One of the reasons the ones that work, you and I talked about Christine. One of the reasons Christine is so good is because Keith Gordon could not be a better choice. 
And yeah. you need that. You need the casting to be just right for some of these. And so, yeah, the ones that don't work for me really don't work for me. And I was with people by the time we reached 1990. It was like, oh, God, it became a chore for somebody who liked his work because his name so often felt to me to be taken in vain. Oh, yeah, I'm just watching Brooke Adams lose it in a car. She's such a good actor. So underrated. <laughs> Yeah, and this stuff is heartbreaking. I can't... That The real horror of this movie is not I can see the future and I have to do something about it. The, the horror of this movie is I have lost a chunk of my life and a piece of who I am, and I can't have it back, and the whole world moved on without me. That's it feels to awful. Me, thematically, it's kind of what Cronenberg touches on in The Fly a little bit. Uh, if you want to take aside, take put aside the ESP um, actions... What happened is he woke up with a disease that is separating him from everybody he loves. His, this, yeah. like he, is, he now has a disease that he doesn't know how to handle, and he's being very uh, uh, upset and unhappy. And his love life with his girlfriend is falling apart because he has a disease, and he's pushing people away. Uh, I, I think that you know not many people can relate to Johnny Smith having ESP visions, but a lot of people can relate to, uh, you know, I, I had a sickness, and, you know, it made me... Oh, wait a minute. We, we, That's the cable guy from Videodrome. Yeah. That's the dude who fed him all this... Oh, my God, I didn't realize he was in this. I never oh, yeah. put... Yeah, yeah, good, good Yeah, out. never never realized that was the same guy. Bet you he's Canadian. Yeah, I bet you he's just a Cronenberg dude, just one of the guys at Cronenberg. That's so crazy. I did not realize that until just now. Uh, Sorry. Must be one of the best. <laughs> must be one of the best things about being a director is, like... Uh, we got a reporter that has three lines. I'm giving that to a guy who worked all my indie films for Peanuts. Oh, okay. You know, like, that's such a nice, such a gracious, good thing to do. Well, and it also, I, I love that when you see a director use a guy over and over, use various cast members over and over. It just suggests to me that there is a real collaborative effort on set because those people come back. Those people want to work with him. I I always take that as a, somewhat of a stamp of approval. So Yeah, and it is. It makes a film feel more like... Um, I love repertory you know, like companies. A, I love like when a you family have. affair. You know, yeah. it feels like, uh, you know, uh, at least some of the people on the set are close friends having good time while they're making something, you know? I, uh, oh, God. And he's I really love, good in this. He's I really, you know, it's a. Yeah. Oh, he's terrific in it. I love how grounded the approach to all this is. They don't go for the superhero or the big, crazy, exaggerated version of what happens when you get these powers. They try to make it as real to what your experience might be as they could. Yeah. And and they don't get it here. Like, we wanted that reporter to get a big uh, payoff, comeback. And, uh, you know, it's like like a, a tease in a way, a good tease. Because we expected to get another vision there, and Cronenberg's like, no, no, not yet. This guy's not important, really. Yeah, it's it's just the idea of suddenly being on display and being this carnival freak, and the all fact because that you we, had a car accident. And we, uh, the viewer, is in on the fact. You know, it happens in a lot of movies, but the beauty of it is we know the truth, and you know, no, you know, the audience knowing that he's telling the truth makes the film psychologically more inviting. You're in on the secret, you know. All right. Um. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> How was your Christmas? My Christmas was uh, awesome. Awesome. I had the boys. How are the boys? Yeah, what they good. do. Now, by the what way, the boys of- have actually seen this. This is one of the Film Nerd 2.0 horror films that has screened for them. 
yeah, uh, yeah, nothing really too, uh, not too too rough or sexy or no. wrong or adult about this one. They were getting interested in Stephen King, and this was right around the time of it. And they were asking you, uh, about you cut you trim one scene, which you shouldn't. And this movie gets a PG thirteen today. Yeah, I assume you're talking about when they find the uh, yeah the yeah. scissor. Yeah, probably. I think you could get away with this for. I, I, yeah, this feels like a Shyamalan film in terms of tone. Like I, this is no rougher than Glass or, you know, the the films he's been like Signs. This feels like it would be right in that PG thirteen. You know, yeah, that's a great little moment there in Eden the hospital when he touches her and he looks up as if he's expecting to get a vision and he and doesn't. She's gone. And, yeah, and he she's knows gone and he now. knows what that means. It's it's yeah. uh, poignant. It's a, it's a it's a good little scene. Sad. There, obviously, here comes Scarrett, and I love uh, Tom Scarrett in this. Yeah. He and this is what I love about Bohm's structure is up until now, no hint that there's going to be any of this. These guys enter different movie now. Suddenly, we're in a different film. Yeah, and it's not you know with another filmmaker, you'd have like a B story about the th- killer, and then it would slowly you know tra- trace its way back to Johnny, and it's like no, no. The cops are going to come because they actually believe he might be a psychic who could help them. And yep. Just that come makes do this. logical sense. You know, yeah, it makes logical sense in the world of this movie. Uh, I love Scarrett. Yeah. He's one of those guys who in the late 70s, early 80s, <clears throat> he could play convincingly a dad, a doctor, a biker, a truck driver, a sheriff, like, whatever. The, he was such about the a captain of a cargo. Uh, yeah. The cop, well, the that's captain what I mean, of a truck cargo driver, space vessel. Yeah. That's a truck driver. That's all he is in that movie. Yeah. And that's what I love about him is he was so versatile and so able to drop into different things. There's a lot of guys who got typecast because, you know, they, they perfectly fit a niche. Scarrett's the opposite. Scarrett is a guy who was so able to just kind of oh, yeah. bend yeah. and be whatever you needed. Oh, absolutely. Have we ever seen Tom Scarrett play like a raving monster? I don't, I don't know if we ever know it. Yeah, because he's usually so affable and, you know, very lovable. And he's got he's very handsome with those blue eyes. You like him right away. And I would just uh, I'm sure we have. But I'd love to see something where he plays like an abusive dick. <laughs> yeah, no, he is one of those guys who uh, I uh, you again have just always had an affection for always it. been good. Like, why would you not? The yeah. guy's on screen and he's always a good actor. He's a likable presence. And he's a you know, he mustache come on man How could, you can't beat that mustache yeah 85 years old and then going back and seeing him in stuff like mash or up in smoke and realizing you know just i growing up i used to get uh before i was obsessed with alien i used to get him confused with lots of other actors um and then in the some sometime in the mid 80s it clicked and i'm like no tom scarrett is not uh just generic character actor there's some real edge and skill there he reminded yeah. me a kid as a kid of james brolin but i like him better than james brolin well, and he certainly wasn't, you know, again, he certainly wasn't adverse to genre fare. I think there are guys who uh, avoided stuff like this sometimes and, and were worried about, oh, well, you know, I'm going to get oh. this guy did everything like he would appear in stuff like Big Bad Mama. He would appear in big films. He did ice castles, for God's sake. Like he was in and again, in whatever he showed up in, you knew he was going to give you the. Goods. Oh, yeah. If there was an alternate universe version of this podcast. And we gushed over Tom Skerritt like we do Dabney Coleman. That would be fair. That would be fine. That would be completely because fair. Because he is just, you know, just that likable. 
and I love, I do, I love this storyline. This is, um, this is for a long time. This is the thing that I remembered most from the film. I I know that the Stilson is what everybody now kind of identifies as the main story of the Dead Zone. For me, it was always this. I always thought this was terrifying. This whole subplot and Johnny getting pulled into it against his his desire, like the idea that you then become a uh, a cop of sorts. That's not him at all. And it's not like the X-Files. It's not like something where he's already an investigator. He's a school teacher. What business does he have doing any of this? That's what yeah, I love about yeah, him being dropped it, into this. I want to also give a quick shout to uh, uh, Sean Sullivan as Johnny's dad. Oh, he's and, so good. Uh, and Jackie Burrows, uh, who has his late mom, who just passed in the earlier scene. Both uh, small but excellent performances. And that blonde cop, keep your eye on him, played by Nicholas Campbell. God, that guy's a creep. That guy just looks yep. like a creep. Yep. Now, again, Scarrett can play anything. That guy looks like he was born to play this guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Nicholas Campbell's one of those act faces you've seen. You know, there's, there's like, I don't know what, and this is not a knock on anybody, but there's like three levels of character actor, right? There's like the Ned Beatty or the JT Walsh that you know instantly. Then there's the one you almost definitely know their face, but not their name. And then there's a guy like Nicholas Campbell, who you know neither, you know, but you've seen him in many things. He's been in like 40 movies. Uh, what have we covered this gentleman in so far? Um, Baker County, USA, the amateur. Yep. Yep. And he was also in The Brood. So there oh, you go. Striking. Like you, you recognize him when you see him. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> one of the things that makes this film special is uh, when we talk about careers that were cut short, Jeffrey Bohm obviously is one. Um, I, I deeply, deeply regret that we did not get more from Deborah Hill. And oh. Deborah Hill uh, is known largely from her connection to John Carpenter and her work on Halloween and, and her work creating some of his early classic films. But she produced this, and she was actually late into the the sort of process. It was at one studio first. Then when Dino uh, got the rights, he was the one that brought her on. I was reading earlier today, uh, talking uh, a uh, Fangoria piece where they were talking about how this kind of ended up in Cronenberg's hands. And he'd been offered the material once before. Couldn't do it. Stanley Donan was going to direct this thing originally, which, good yeah. God. Can you imagine? It would have been a, uh, hot off. Blame it on Rio. <laughs> I know. I uh, What an insane choice for this. So um, very happy that didn't happen. Uh, it ended up back in Dino's hands and he brought Deborah Hill in and I was reading that it was Mick Garris who called David and said, hey, why don't you come over to John Landis's office? Deborah Hill's here. We're all just sitting around talking. Why don't you come over? So he went over to the offices. And while he was there, Mick was the one who brought up, hey, uh, you know that Deborah's producing the Dead Zone now. And she turned to Cronenberg and said, how do you feel about the Dead Zone? And he said, I'm in. And that was it. It was that simple because he already knew the book and realized how often do you get a second shot at something? Okay, yes. I, uh, aside from the fact uh, uh, that she died way too young, there is something really special about uh, Deborah Hill, her early career. I mean, she worked with Carpenter, co-wrote or produced Halloween, The Fog, mm-hmm. Escape from New York, Halloween 2, and Halloween 3. Then she gets hired by David Cronenberg, by Dealer De Laurentiis to work with Cronenberg. Uh, 
that that to me is just you know imagine that that you you know you're, you've done such a good job with John Carpenter that now David Cronenberg wants you to produce his movie. Well, no, God. other way around. She brought him on. Like it, oh. it, that was oh, right, her. Right, right. De Laurentiis hired her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I she and brought him back. She she was so good at. And here's what I think Deborah's real gift was. She was a terrific producer in the sense that. She knew what somebody's voice was. She knew what their skills were. And then she would create that environment that let them thrive. And I've heard the same thing about Jonathan Lynn and Clue. Jonathan Lynn is a a very funny guy who really hasn't put it together over and over and over. But Clue works. And a big part of that was because she knew how to get him the space to make that film. Yeah, when, when people hear Deborah Hill, they probably first think John Carpenter, which makes sense. But... Beyond that and The Dead Zone, she also produced Clue, Adventures in Babysitting, yep. uh, Big Top Pee Wee, Fisher King, and yeah. World Trade Center. Yeah. I mean, I mean <clears throat> that's a pretty impressive list. And she died way too young. And I can only imagine that her credits would be three times as impressive if she was still with us. So uh, yeah. thank you, Deborah Hill. Thank you. But I do love that this this put her together with Cronenberg because I think that, again, he needed coming off of the sting of sort of the misstep with Videodrome's release, I think he needed to be in a very safe place and be encouraged and have somebody who knew how great he was working with him. And you look at the work he does here. Clearly, he had everything he needed. He was supported. This film feels like the film of somebody who is not beg, borrow, and stealing every single thing he needs. Like, it is a really controlled, confident, mature film. <laughs> yeah, and it almost feels like Cronenberg said, all right, people know what I'm about. They know I like horror, and they know I like visceral horror. I'm going to show them that I can do a very different kind of horror that is almost entirely blood and gore-free, but is still uh, shocking and sad and upsetting, uh, and he did an, a phenomenal job. <laughs> this kills me. This whole sequence kills me. This is uh, this is cruel. The idea of yeah. spending time with your ex-girlfriend and her baby that was going to be your baby. And oh, this is just heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, we have to look at it as if it's real life. And, and in real life, you know, five, six, seven years go by or, you know, and, and things hurt a little less. And you're able to reconcile it and say, I'm glad she has he a hasn't happy had life, that but- five, six or seven years, though. Yeah, that's that's what sucks is it's just happened to him. And I that I the disparity between them is what I find heartbreaking in that that smile. I love Christopher Walken. God damn it. I love this man. I absolutely adore his work. I love his persona, the way he carries himself. Uh, You know, he's done like, (laughs) you know, anybody this prolific. He's been in some crappy movies, but boy, his good his best is. Just st- staggeringly good. He is, and so it is good. weird seeing warm Christopher Walken, and he's genuinely warm here. Like this is a really sweet. No, you moment. know what though, Drew? It's not. It's warm. It's weird because we don't see it as much. That's what but, I mean. It's yeah. nobody uses him this way in film. But, but there but you it know is. What? The our, warmth is our real. Age, yeah. yeah, people our age see a movie with Christopher Walken holding a baby and crying. We'd be like, yeah, Walken can do anything. A younger person might be like, oh, I thought he was just wacky. That's what happens. I think sometimes as you get older, and especially if you're as striking and iconic as he is, it's very easy for him to get cast a certain way or to be thought of a certain way. Same thing, the same trap is out there for Willem Dafoe, guys like that. What makes, what really keeps a career going is when they zig and they figure out ways to play against type. Dafoe is a brilliant 
reinventor. Yeah. The fact that oh, he, absolutely. every five or six years you go, oh, yeah, Willem Dafoe's awesome. It's because he reminds you. He has to. Yeah. Well, they have. They both have this natural, <clears throat> I don't even want to say weirdness, but like, let's say wildness. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and they have very distinctive looks. Willem Dafoe and Chris Walken can both look very handsome, but they can also both easily look grotesque. And, you know, that that's something that uh, like uh, Tom Cruise is not going to be willing to look grotesque. These guys are. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's a reason that, you know, uh, as we've moved into the comic book era, there's a reason that they look at Walken and uh, Defoe and instantly go, oh, bad guys, please, please, please. Oh, and uh, I'm sorry. And Gold- visually so and, striking. And, uh, and Goldblum. Oh, yeah. There's, there's I'm a not, reason I hope you I just don't, want to lean into that. Yeah. I really hope that I don't sound arrogant or or superior in any way because i don't i mean this very sincerely watching younger people take to jeff goldblum after ragnarok made me so happy because we've done that for years like all those people who semi just it happens every 15 years every 15 years people rediscover him right right. i I bet you there's a lot of young amazing and you're like yeah he is i know there's a lot of people under (laughs) say 25 who know goldblum from jurassic park of course yeah. And the, and of course now Ragnarok and have seen maybe him in one or two or three other movies. But I and, do think there's yeah. there's going to continue to be as long as Jeff Goldblum's with us. Every ten years, that new audience is going to go. Who is that? Yep. And, and we're going to go. I, welcome I to the party. Here he is. If if you <laughs> semi discovered Jeff Goldblum in Ragnarok, hit us up on Twitter and we can recommend to you five very fun, very weird Jeff Goldblum performances that tickled us when we were in our twenties. The guy is like a walk-in just irresistible. He's just fun to watch. Even in serious stuff, he is fun to watch and listen to. Oh, it's a great shot. A, I also, post- I also love the posters, this, right? Walken does not immediately jump into that case that it, because he's a school to, Oh God, this tunnel. I know. That's that what was I was the just first, saying. first photo I ever saw from the movie was that still. They use that for a poster, right? Yeah. I think. Great. And that's still. real slush. I'm telling you, I am East Coast, born and raised. That is real slush. Oh, it's a real tunnel. It's, it's, <laughs> and it's a haunted tunnel. Um, that is uh, the, the place where they shot it. Is It's called the, it's nicknamed the Screaming Tunnel. And there is an entire urban legend about the little boy who died down there who, if you uh, blow out the candle, you will hear him screaming in the uh, tunnel. So uh, it's a hell of a visual, man. That is immediately iconic. I uh, Just to give some info, I am now referring to Wikipedia. This film was shot in the greater Toronto area uh, and regional municipality of Niagara of Cronenberg's native Ontario. The so-called Screaming Tunnel, located in Niagara... No, no, uh, located in nearby Niagara Falls, Ontario, was also used as a backdrop for one scene. The gazebo was built by the film crew and, dio- and donated to Niagara on the Lake. Uh, I have seen actual photos that people have taken at that gazebo. Uh, in an interview on the Dirty Harry DVD, director John Badham said he was attached to direct the film at one stage. Interesting. I haven't seen that anywhere else. Yeah, no. Um... But, you know, you know, it's like you're an, you're an A-list director and like they call you up and say, yeah, we're we're blah, 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 And now all of a sudden it's they asked me to direct it. It's like you, you had a phone call. Come yeah. How, how attached were you? Because I've read quite a bit and I, I haven't had seen his name there. Um, but OK, that's cool. Um, he said he, he says here he pulled out as he felt the subject matter was irresponsible to show on screen. What? What? You're going to give psychics all kinds of bad, bad ideas. 
Oh, God. Yeah, look. You don't don't want to give psychics ideas, man. Yeah. Oh, wait. They've already had them. What? You give a politician a horrible idea of what to do with a baby? What? I mean. (laughs) Uh, Trust me. Uh, Drew, uh, should we discuss the wonderful haunting score by Michael Kamen? Absolutely. And in fact, Michael Kamen in general. Again, a guy that we, I can't believe, is not still composing scores nonstop for us. Um, I love his work. He wrote one of my favorite scores of all time, which we'll get to next year when we talk about Brazil. But uh, I love this piece of music. This is a gorgeous horror movie score because it doesn't play like a horror film at all. Yeah. um, He he is an amazing composer. He passed away way too young in 97. Uh, he had an MS, and uh, he is missed. What a great composer. Gosh. Did he win an Oscar? I don't think he did, actually. Um, okay. <laughs> now, it's interesting. The um, This is another one of those cases where, uh, as various people went through the, the process, like you said, uh, Stephen King actually wrote a couple of drafts of this. And... That literal-minded translation that happens sometimes when you've already written a piece of work, and so you're gonna, it's gonna be the same approach when you do it in another form. Um, even King finally had to admit that the drafts he turned in didn't work because they were very married to the structure of the book. So it's it's fascinating to me how you can write something, you can be the originator of something not be the right guy to get it across the finish line on film. Yeah, that is, it's just fascinating. You would think, well, who better to adapt an, um, a screenplay than the, the original novelist? Well, that's not always the case. You know, yeah. sometimes the guy who builds the house is not the guy to, I got nothing for this analogy. <laughs> well, and I think part of the problem was there, there was a lot of pushback on how supernatural to make this film. And it's weird because that that is... You talk about horror and the definition of horror. For a lot of people, that's the line. A horror film is where there's the supernatural is overtly involved. And I know with Donan's drafts, that was what he was trying to avoid. He was trying yeah, to... Yeah, you're right. You're to, right. When the horror is, is, is mostly human created, then people often want to call that psychological thriller as if it's safer to call a human, not horror. It's a thriller, yeah. you know, but... This and is I know Donan yeah. wanted to downplay that and wanted, oh God, I love this vision. This vision, it, this is one of my favorite examples in the movie of Johnny dropping into an actual moment to see everybody, to see this whole thing play out. Oh, it's so creepy. Yeah, the whole, every edit in this moment, every cut is, is uh, tells a little bit more of the story. Very precise, very economical. And again, this thing's a hundred. It's it's an hour and forty something minutes. Oh, it's a um, remarkably efficient movie. Covers through. so I, much ground uh, so fast. There's and then wait, wait, suddenly, if, boom, he's in if, it. If I could have one like note, and I don't know how I would fix this, and I don't even know if it needs to be fixed, but there are so few characters that like when we see who he, the killer is, it's like, oh, okay, that's the one character it could have been, really. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I'm not sure that it was ever mystery so much as it's just now Johnny can actually look right at yeah. you and say it was you. Yeah, yeah, good point. It's uh, this is not really meant to be a full bore mystery for the whole film. It's meant to be a mystery for about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and then it's just that shock of oh god, it's that that dude was right there like five minutes. Where is he? Because you've seen him at the periphery of this scene, and so it's okay. Where is he now? Um. 
beautifully staged. This is this is one of my favorite stretches of Cronenberg, of any Cronenberg film. It's so tense. It's so, God, that's a creepy. He's very good yep. also at not going yep. over the top with stuff that yep. he could have created like a, a you know oh, crazy yeah. weapon there he, he or something. Had, he, wait, he bears her breast and then he pulls out a scissors. Okay, in another film, maybe you do want to show that. In this, no, 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 no. It is so much better to just see him trying to react to a vision and trying to get him to stop. It tells you a lot about Johnny. It tells you, you know. Uh, it, it I also love the jump the from day to night where we see Johnny in day for one shot and then in night Andrew, for another how shot. How creepy is it? I, I, it's something that I hadn't even thought about until now. How creepy is it that he murders her in broad daylight in yeah. the middle of a field? Yeah. <laughs> something about that. I mean, most most of these murders in movies take place in a scary, dark uh, hallway or basement. And that's where scary stuff is supposed to happen. Not in broad daylight. <laughs> well, and that's that just speaks to how crazy that guy is. That's and it, no, it just speaks to how fucking clever Cronenberg and Boam and King and Hill and all the people who made this movie are. Uh, he's gone, boss. Uh, he said he had things to do uh, at home, like kill people. I, oh, shit, I, I should have stopped him. Just, all right, we're going to do a quick improv meeting. Okay, uh, you're Cronenberg. Okay. I am everyone else who's worked on this film. Mr. Cronenberg, we think this film is brilliant. All the decisions you've made have been great. We think it's going to be a big hit. We think people are going to love it. My question to you, sir, is... Do we have to make the killer suicide quite that uniquely gruesome? Could he not just shoot himself? Could he not just cut his wrists? Does it have to be that, like, unique? I, you've never seen any kind of violence like this in a movie before or since. Let me ask you this. As a time traveler from the year 2018, have you ever forgotten it since you've seen it? Never. Well, then there's your answer. I I just can't. Like, I, I write, and I come up with some pretty elaborate monsters and kills and death scenes. I wouldn't even think to come up with this. And that's not a criticism mm-hmm. or a compliment. It's just showing that I have some good level of creativity, but I don't have this level of dark creativity. I, this had to be a moment where the when the image occurred to him, and dude, sometimes that's all oh, it is. Oh, when he says to Colleen Dewhurst, you knew. Yeah. Oh, so you, good. Oh, uh, you knew. And just that's it. You knew. But I, I think when you come up with an image like this, you'll find a way to reverse engineer the moment to get to that because you want that image. And I think as a filmmaker, sometimes I know there was a moment on Cigarette Burns when Scott and I were working when I first came up with and I was laughing to him. Hey, what if we got Udo? What if we got Bellinger to stick his guts in the projector? And he started laughing, and then I started laughing, and then cut to six months later as we're standing on a set watching Udo Kier feed his guts into a projector. And sometimes it's literally just you can't believe anybody's going to let you do this thing. So you're going to. Okay, I have a question. I'm going to do this thing. I have a question that I was just going to say. Why is Johnny the only one here? <laughs> Why is the cop yeah. not with him? Well, because he ran up the stairs already. Yeah, uh, and we do have to mention she's only in it, blink and you miss it. But Colleen Dewhurst is a phenomenal actress. I think it's one of those roles where you had to cast somebody of her weight to really. Yeah, yeah. You you know, one person says, oh, she has like eight lines. Does it matter? We can get a good no name actor. Watch her when she breaks. When he says you knew, watch her. 
that's eyes why are you hurt. hire her because my yeah. God, she gives you a story in that moment. This is just too creepy. Oh, he's super crazy. He's super crazy. <laughs> why would? <laughs> why, uh, why would that be your yeah. chosen? Why would that be your chosen suicide method? Oh my God! And the fact that it's never explained. You know, it's. Just, I know. Well, he is. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is if you're David Cronenberg, you want to go stand in the theater in the back and, and just watch this. This like two and a half minutes over and over with audiences when they melt. Um, there is and a yeah, special I, I, I joy like, that comes from watching an entire theater to lose that goddamn. I, I like the subtlety. I like the subtlety of this that he's living in a child's room, but it's not like oh no, he is never grown twisted. up at all. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not like arcane and dirty and gross. It's just he's living in a child's. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, and there's you know a lot Cronenberg. of storytelling in the production design. There's a lot of storytelling in everything that Cronenberg does in this movie, and that's oh. the difference between him and. And that's also what an adaptation can do for you. All of that could be in the book, could be suggested. Oh, my God. Uh, could be suggested in the book, could be spelled out explicitly, could be pages of stuff. And then you simply get to use that as texture. And good filmmakers, they they never feel like they're... they're um, oh. Like they are restricted by adaptation. You should use adaptation as... You know, you have all this stuff to draw from to make it even richer. Yeah, yeah. I uh, Several years ago, I read a novel that I really loved, and I got in touch with the author and a, and a few producers, and I uh, somehow got an assignment to, oh, turn, to turn a novel called The Troop into a screenplay, and I did. And the first draft I did was very, very close to the novel, uh, and then I realized that it wasn't very good, and I made six months' worth of changes. And I switched genders on some characters. I changed major plot points. I, but the key is you got to keep the kernel of what makes the book awesome. You cannot change that much that you alter the source material so that it's unrecognizable. But adaptation is not translation. I think, I think one of the key questions and maybe the key question is why am I telling this story as a film? Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And why why is this a movie? What is it what is it about this that I feel needs to be told as a film? And then just hold on to that line. And that's what Boehm does here. And again, now look, the moment that last storyline ends, we get our first hint of Stilson. There. Boom. Now yep. enter Greg Stilson. And I love that he is looming over Johnny from this moment forward, thinks that goddamn billboard outside his house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the irony that his beloved is working for him. And I know that that feels like maybe one coincidence too far at the end, but then again, yeah, there's small, a sad a small, inevitability about it. It's there's, a small town. Yeah. yeah, there's something that just feels doomed about the rest of this film because we're, we're about an hour in now. And from this point forward, things get no better for Johnny, and they only get worse. Now, uh, yeah, and you've you've made the point real clear, and I agree 100% that, you know, the movie is basically about Johnny's journey after this happens. Okay, first, he saves a child's life by touching the nurse's arm. Then he's able to extrapolate where Herbert Lom's, uh, you know, terrible childhood came from. And it's almost like 
Now I'm just the local psychic, uh, reluctantly, but I am. So when you need help finding a killer or when you need, you know, when you need to stop a rotten politician, uh, you know, I can help out. And I believe that's this structure is why many years later, somebody had the good idea to turn this idea, this book into a very good TV show. Uh, I, wa- I watched the first two or three seasons of The Dead Zone with Anthony Michael Hall, and I was pleasantly surprised. And I'm telling you, for the first couple episodes, I had my arms folded like, impress me, motherfucker. This movie is, a, you know, and I like that show. I never really watched it, but I think it's a really natural idea for a show. And it doesn't surprise me that somebody would take that as the, the sort of jumping off point. Um, I, I It's just at an era where I wasn't watching a lot of television, but... It's a really natural. There's not a lot of King's books where I feel like you could, the story could continue after the end of something. But as long as Johnny doesn't die, yes, you you ultimately you have this great vehicle then for storytelling as he sort of meets and helps people. But at that point, is that show a horror show? Because I think that is a very different character. Uh, If I remember correctly, there are some episodes that deal with, you know, death and monsters and creepy shit and stalkers. And then there are some that are more, you know, wistful and hopeful. But Johnny being okay, it's just weird to me because it kind of changes the focus of things. If Johnny's helping people and there's no real toll for him. It's a much different tone. And it's been years since I've seen it. But uh, I would like to maybe go back and uh, see the ones I didn't see. Interesting. Yeah, it's it 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 seems like a natural jump, and uh, I, I'm not surprised that somebody took a shot at trying that. Um, it was a hit too. It ran for a while. Yeah, it was on for it was on for a fairly long time, and it was nice to see Anthony Michael Hall start to oh, rebuild. Because I just so what did I just see? Oh, oh, I watched Bodied, the Joseph yeah. Kahn film, and he plays uh, the the main kid's dad. Yeah, and. He finds a way to make the disapproving dickhead dad interesting again. Yeah. There is some really funny, strange stuff from Anthony Michael Hall in that movie. Yeah, I liked him a lot. I'm uh, I'm happy to see him work pretty much any time now. And I just want I want people to take a chance on him again. I would like to see some different casting for him. I, I feel like Anthony Michael Hall still got a lot in the tank that we haven't seen. I like that robe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're going to be a, a housebound, uh, semi-crazy psychic, why not do a little pizzazz? My God, that's wear, a lot of letters. What, what's he wearing under that robe? Like he looks like he's got like a a, a waistcoat on or something. <laughs> Scarf. <laughs> he's an English Byronic poet, and uh, yeah, or that robe, or that robe has some weird lining. I don't know, but I like it. I want the dead zone robe. Somebody find that for me. There you go. God, that's ugly. And I like here, I like, you know what I like a lot is that he's not always melancholy. He's not always poor me. Sometimes he's smile. Sometimes he's pissy. Sometimes he's, I don't want to help. You know what I mean? He's not always just mopey. Yeah, no, this is, like I said, I, I feel like he goes through very realistic reactions to all of this. And it's, it's one of the weirdest things. I like to think this is, I I like to think this is that nurse's kid, uh, three years old, four years older. One of the weirdest things about sort of genre movies is how often we see the movies where people just don't behave like people and it's accepted. Like we just kind of accept it. Well, they're in a horror film. So they're going to act like they're in a horror film. They're going to do illogical things and stuff like, and it's always been a, a real thing for me that 
the ones that really stick are the ones where people do things that just look like people would do. This movie is loaded with that. And so much of it is just about living daily life and about how he pays his rent, for God's sake. That What other horror films actually remember to build in the idea that as this thing is happening to him, his life is getting really difficult and it's hard for him to make a living because he can't just get a regular job anymore. And so the it's the nuts and bolts stuff in this movie that ultimately sell it as very real. Oh yeah, and if make he's that a guy who was work. if he's a guy who was born a psychic and is relatively happy and is financially successful, that's not that interesting. Or really. if he just jumped right into being like super detective Johnny Smith and he's running around and having action scenes, I would have a hard time believing that yeah, because that's yeah, not there's the a guy real, they've established. And, and and there's a real sadness to Walken's performance because. He's being inundated with very unpleasant things, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, nobody ever says to him, hey, can you uh, help me find my million-dollar uh, money clip? No, it's where's my kid? Where's the killer? Where's the ice? You know, it's well, like it's always through Zerba here because it starts with, hey, I want you to teach my kid, and I don't care about any of the other stuff, but that other stuff is going to creep back in and fuck it up. And no matter how much, like, no matter how many somebody wants to help him or wants to say, well, I don't care about the psychic stuff. That's such a big piece of his life now that it's going to continue to creep in and ruin things. And that I really like. And I, I think that's great writing. That's uh, it doesn't just full speed ahead, stick to the horror elements of the pre every other horror film would be doing like every 10 minutes, you'd have a, a new creepy vision and there'd be something really creepy and scary. I guarantee if anybody remakes the dead zone, it's going to be loaded with flash cuts and loud screams. And it's yeah. going to be so souped up to make sure that they are scaring you every 10 minutes as How opposed great. to just letting the situation crush you. So many great veteran actors getting small parts in this movie. Anthony Zerby, is normally uh, very creepy, very ominous, very, you know, and, and you could tell in that scene where he's going back and forth with Johnny about, I don't care about your uh, former problems, and he, he, like, shakes his hand, and you see something in his eyes where Zerbi is trying to get across, I'm not a monster. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually playing an okay guy for a, for a change, and he's really earnest. It's really a good performance. I and love the... the I love the arc he has with his kid in this. It, it mm -hmm. is very real where there's it's stern. It's a little bit overbearing, but at the same time, boy, does he love his kid. And it's a nice it's a nicely nuanced performance where that could just be the asshole dad who won't listen to a warning. And that's not at all what Zerby plays. Look how young Martin Sheen looks. I, I mean, when I saw this as a kid, I thought Martin Sheen was like, you know, maybe not a granddad, but an older dad. And in here, what does he look like? He looks 26. Oh, my God. He's he's a baby. And he was starting to break at this point. This was not a um, an easy decision for him. I think he could have just looked for leads by this point. And instead, I think he was very sharp about material. When he read a good role, the size of the role is not what determined yeah, whether wait, or not he would uh, take Drew, it. That is a great misdirect right there because we think he's going to touch his hand and get a vision and instead he just hands him a button and he and like it's just a great because the audience really wants that moment where Stilson touches Johnny. Yep. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, not now, later. And God, it, the delightful irony that Martin Sheen would later play maybe the greatest president ever created for film. Yep. The yep, Atticus yep. Finch of presidents. 
um, is really delightful now because yeah. this is so the opposite. Few things uh, I've ever seen, especially in my young movie watching uh, career. Not very few things I've ever seen are as reprehensible as what Greg Stilson does at the end of this movie. And it just <laughs> sticks in your head so that when I won't mention any proper nouns, but when certain current day politicians uh, take the stage, that's what I see, that certain politicians would do that, what Greg Stilson does. And well, he was a cartoon when this movie was made. That ending was unthinkable that any politician would ever fall that far. And we live now, unfortunately, in an age where I don't think this is remotely outside the realm of possibility. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, just imagine when they, you know, came a, King and Boam and came across this idea of, well, it's going to be a tragic ending, but we're going to have him do something very, very noble. It almost uh, feels it, like it, a David Cronenberg movie runs into Three Days of the Condor and runs into one of those weird 70s paranoia thrillers. Uh, now, Drew, I don't remember. Is the ending with Stilson identical in the book? Yeah, lar- largely. It's okay. it's very similar in the way it plays out. Yeah, it's not it's not exactly the same. They condense everything and kind of fold it all into one big thing. I'm so glad Martin Sheen is a badass in this. He's a good performance uh, because we just saw him in Dreamscape and I, I hated revisiting it for one reason. I still like the movie, but that's one of the few Martin Sheen performances where he just feels like he's bored. And uh, what and was in, he in, in Dreamscape? This movie, cinder blocks. Right. Yeah. yeah. He was the head of the shop. Yeah, it's uh, and see, that's the problem is there's so many thrillers from this era where there's the shop or the company or the and they I get confused about who's in what. So, yeah, in Firestarter, he runs the shop. And oh, and I mean, he just he's better in he's better in the scene we already saw him in in this movie than he is in all of Dreamscape. And I'm not wait. Are you, do you mean Dreamscape or Firestarter? What did I say? You've been saying Dreamscape. I was wrong. Firestarter. Cinder Firestarter, right. Because he did two kings back to back, basically. Yeah, yeah. And he kind of played it, you know. Yeah, it's similar. He's both. so much better in this. But it's but then again, clearly, God, look this how is much the he better looks screenplay. Like, look this right is, there. Look, he looks like Charlie Sheen. Good God. There are moments where it depends on which side of his face you're shooting. There's moments where he's Emilio. There's moments where yeah. he's Charlie. And there's moments where neither one of them looks like the other but yeah it's it's funny he is that weird merger of the two where you know what's a shame you know what is i mean i mean this that martin sheen has so much talent and his sons don't (laughs) i i i think that emilio is a guy who they didn't use right emilio is really appealing in the we'll right get films. into Emilio Estevez, but I nothing personal because I like the guy, but I can't remember seeing an Emilio Estevez performance where I went, "Whoa, good." Yeah, maybe maybe not whoa, but I I find him likable. I really do. Yeah. I think he's an easy guy to like on screen. I don't particularly like him as a filmmaker very much. We're gonna get to wisdom, and, and I do uh, give uh, Emilio Estevez. I give credit because. He legitimately didn't want to trade on his dad's name. So yeah. he, you know, we used the original family name and that that's classy. I, uh, I, I think Martin Sheen would be a hard act to follow for anybody. Yeah. yeah this yeah, guy yeah. is a gigantic presence and I, and I love the various stages of his career. I love the early sort of scrappy. I, dude, 
the first time I saw Badlands was revelatory oh, for me. Wait, where that look. Zerby gives him a little punch and then uh, on his arm and then mm-hmm. <laughs> Walken looks down at it like it like it's shit. He's like, don't touch me. He's thinking, don't touch me. Yeah, I, 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 I just I, I think Sheen has been great for a lot of years and he's I like him best you, when he's oh, playing nice Martin Sheen. What do you think he's he played more of? Shitty Martin Sheen here. Yeah. What do you think he's played more of? Good guy or bad guy? I think before West Wing, bad guy. I think post yeah. West Wing, good guy. I think that was the moment that kind of redefined him permanently. The shadows in this scene. I love the light and shadow in this scene. It's just like highlighting the books and the... Well, he makes it... This is very... Man, Cronenberg doesn't... Again, if they remade this, can you imagine how, how cool everything would be? This is a movie where it just looks like they shot in houses and they just shot in Maine. And they, I know it's all Toronto and outskirts of Toronto, but it all looks lived in and yeah. real. That's Maine's backyard. Yeah. It doesn't look to me like a designed movie. It looks like they just slipped into people. And there, that guy, also from uh, Videodrome. Brood. Brood and Videodrome. That guy's great. Yep. I forgot how many other Cronenberg players are in this movie. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just getting over a cold, and we can't cut. We don't edit on the <coughs> podcast. I know I'm doing the same thing. I'm a little, I'm a little dry myself. <coughs> Deal with it, warts and all, baby. <laughs> you know what's really great is that we had that long sequence of them watching him on television. He's doing push-ups. He's doing shtick. He's smiling and laughing. And then in this next scene, he's sitting in a dark room and he's flipping out on men. Stronger and older than him. This is the real guy. This is Greg Stilson. The guy on TV is the shtick. And uh, it's nice to finally see who the guy is that uh, that is sort of the big bad of this movie. The thing that we've been building towards. Yeah. And, and like you said earlier, I love that it's not made out to be like a superhero versus a supervillain. But if you want to kind of extrapolate and, and put that template on top of it. You do have a reluctant superhero and a clear mega villain. <laughs> yeah, well, and Stilson, Stilson is sort of that dawning. King very much came out of the I don't trust government. I don't trust anybody who you yeah, know, well, runs things. Yeah, yeah King, King really believed this. This is built into his Wait, entire look philosophy. Here. As a you to look at he's talking and Sheen is doing like a baby face now yeah. as if he's trying to get these guys to like, call, I'm sorry, you know, I flipped out, but look at me being calm and chill now. Yeah, it's this. Oh, and so look at these much. photos of you, by the way. Here you go. I don't need to be mean now because look at that. There you go. You work for me. But yeah, he's he is. A beautifully etched version of that. And sometimes King, I think, went too far and, and would lean on it too heavily. I think Stilson's a, a very real portrait of a guy that we should be afraid of, a guy who wants power oh, for the yeah, sake of power. He, he's not cartoonishly evil. I mean, maybe his final act is, but, um, you know, it's a movie. <laughs> and yeah. uh, It's real easy to go too far with this. And I, uh, uh, you know, Drew, mentioning I, I Firestarter, Firestarter is where I think it's just ladled on with both hands and it gets ridiculous. And the CIA is killing people on farms and stuff. And I eh. uh, wanted to uh, just uh, clarify the late, great Michael Kamen never did win an Oscar, but he was nominated twice with Brian Adams and Robert John Lang once for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, best song. And again, for Don Juan DeMarco, best song. So, uh. You know, while he did dozens of amazing scores, he never nominated for best score. Twice for best song. 
That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, I tells you. Um, yeah. La La Land Records, uh, by the way, puts out a lot of stuff that uh, was not put out originally or was not put out when the movies originally came out. They are, in my opinion, the Criterion Collection of soundtracks, if you're a soundtrack nerd, and their Dead Zone soundtrack, awesome. would like to just throw out some more love since we had, you know, a good full movie to talk about. The uh, cinematographer on this film, the awesome Mark Irwin, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what did he do? He did The Blob in 88. He does The Fly for Cronenberg in 86. He did Videodrome. Uh, he did Scanners. He did The Brood. So, you know, there we go. Um, and he is a fantastic TP. Uh, I also want to mention, we mentioned earlier how brilliantly cut this movie is. And this is uh, the editor's Ron Sanders, who uh, in recent years did more Cronenberg, Eastern Promises, History of Violence. This man is loyal to his crew. Well, and vice versa. There's people that come back over and over to work with him. And yeah, you know, his, 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 so his DP and his editor go with him, um, not on literally everything, but on mostly everything. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, Howard Shore was an early um, collaborator, I, I think, with a lot of the studio pictures that guys like Carpenter and Cronenberg did, uh, they did not get to bring everybody over. And, you know, Howard Shore was also, I, I think at that point, not as tried and tested as a feature composer. So Cayman's score here is just unassailably good. Um, and it's weird. Yeah, this is and, Paramount. This, Paramount. And how beautiful is it to just be able to t- tell... The director, like, yeah, we want your stamp enough that, fine, you can bring your DP, you can bring your cut, uh, your mm-hmm. editor, and, you know, like, that that's just, you know, affording an artist some actual respect instead um, of just, oh, you got the job, be grateful. <laughs> it's weird watching how various studios handled sort of uh, genre fare at the time. Paramount really struggled. Paramount did not have a in-house. They, they weren't making these movies in-house. They were struggling to figure out how to do it. It really yeah. wasn't their wheelhouse. This one was despite, an independent. Yeah. It was despite an independent the, pickup. Uh, they had tried okay. earlier. I know that they were. This was right around the same time that they were deep in the weeds on the keep, and they were really. They they wanted to be in the horror business because everybody in town was on the horror business, but Paramount also could not figure the horror business out. So I think picking a movie up was at that at that point their best bet because they didn't know how to do it in the house oh that look when they when she when brooke adams when she walks away he looks back oh god breaks my heart um yeah yeah and and historically speaking uh even though they were the distributor of the first eight friday the 13th films i would venture a guess that paramount statistically speaking is probably the least horror producing studio there is well and even with even with friday the 13th look how quickly they had no idea what to do they were they by part four they were like i guess we're gonna kill them and we're done uh they really didn't know what to do with anything that they had it 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 was not a great place if you were a horror filmmaker or if you were trying to do I, i think really unusual genre stuff there were other studios that were much had much stronger track records in the early 80s and were much more open to it and that had a real appetite for it. it wasn't Paramount, man. Yeah, here, the ice is going to break. The, the shot of the kids falling in one at uh, a time. Oh, God, is that horrifying. Well, and this is still... I, right I th- now, now, tell me this right now is not a horror movie, please. 
I always forget that it takes this long into the film before this moment happens, and this is by far one of the maybe maybe the most iconic thing about the movie is that delivery. Oh well, yeah, you you say this, uh, you mentioned this movie to somebody who's seen it. I don't know, one or two or three times. They'll go, "The ice is gonna break." That's what they'll say. <laughs> now, I never really got why Zerbi is so reluctant to cancel. That that's something here that, I, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's admitting that there is a supernatural power in the world and that this guy has it. One of the reasons Zerby said to him, "I don't believe I don't care about all that," is because he's saying I don't believe in any of that. This is not doesn't matter to me. That's nonsense. He's going to have to acknowledge that it's real if he's going to not send his kid to the lake that right, day. Right, yeah. So by canceling, he's admitting, essentially, he believes in... Yeah, I, and that's a big yeah. buy-in for somebody. And, you know, he sees how freaked out his kid is. This is where, as a father, I start to, like, oh, really hurt because he sees his kid is wigged out by this guy. His yeah, but you first know what? impulse he never is says, the dude has to go away because the dude is scaring says, my kid. I... I saved a, a burning child. Yeah. I, you know, he, why doesn't he say it? Oh, I love that. Listen to me. Fucking ice is going to break. Oh, beautiful. When he smashes that face. Oh, I love it. We've, we've talked about um, uh, the, the way Walken has that unique rhythm to speech. It is one of the reasons that you remember him and will always remember him is he figured out early in his career that he has his own cadence. He has his own rhythms, his own way of delivery. And that the reason we remember the ice is going to break isn't because it's a great, it's a good line. Love the but collar. It's Love that collar. He I almost looks like Batman the hair with that there. collar. He is, he is by this point turned into a sort of vampire. He's been styled up now into almost, it's yeah. almost sleepy hollow. You look at him, the hair and the everything else. It's, he's very stylized here now. You. He's like, you think I don't know this shit about you? Oh, that little kid's wicked. This kid out. is good. Yeah, he's this... so scared. No, the kid is a great actor. He yeah. does some nice work with Walken, really. Um, and again, I like I like that there's time spent with Walken just as his tutor, and that it's there's so long before they drop that penny finally that they earn how hard this is for him to walk away from. Yeah. And he has that scene earlier where he gives the kid a hug. And, you know, in today's world, you'd look at that and go, oh, wait, why is he hugging somebody else's son? But it's a poignant, touching moment. It's a, and, and it also is obviously very important because that's where he learns about the ice is going to break. Oh, and you know what else I love, Drew? That he touches him the second time yeah. and they don't show all is well. All you get is walking saying, okay, it's okay now. You know, you, they don't show them just like the ice being... Well, that's that's know, so much more about him and the kid there. Yeah. Love how you could tell that this kid is spoiled and they don't overdo it. He's got a computer. He's got this boom box, huge room, toys all over. He's a sweet kid, but he's clearly given everything he wants. Oh, yeah. I would have liked to have had this room at 13, man. Oh, God. Come on, kid. Oh, God, Zerb. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah, it's that old, yeah, that old fear of, of you know, something you believe. Oh, look at the whole. Hardy Boys books on his shelf. I see the blue spines there. Um, they actually had to reshoot. There was a, it's funny, I love the set decoration in this movie. I think they did a terrific job of making it feel very real and lived in, as we said. But 
there was in the fire sequence, they actually had to reshoot it because in the uh, first cut of it, they had an E.T. on one of the shelves that burned and Universal objected. Ah. And it was unmissable. So um, not often. This was before I think companies were as protective of you can't show anything of ours. Think of how often you see like real toys or real licensed products on shelves or people drink real food and you see Coke cans and things in 70s and 80s films. A lot of that you don't do now simply because there's so many complicated licensing and rights deals behind it. But this was a point. This was one of those few moments where somebody stepped up and was like, I don't think you can show that. Um, yeah, I'm watching. Uh, I think I'm a few seconds ahead of you and I'm watching the, the phone call. Yeah, uh, there's no obviously there's no I told you so. There's no confrontational moment. It's all just sad. It's just tragic, period. There's no. You know, he he is it. He's dumb for not listening to him, but it's hard to paint Zerby as a villain. Yeah, you know. Oh, he's never going to let himself live that down. No, I know. I mean, he does something terrible, but I, you know, it's hard to say he is a bad guy yeah. overall. Yeah, that one's like much of this. It's more sad than it is uh, anything else. All right, and then you but, now you we're finding that home stretch, you know, and I like they it. Leave, they leave it up to the viewer to realize. Okay, two of those children died, but by Johnny doing that, he saved two, six, ten other kids. Yeah. Well, we, like but they let they leave that for the audience to put that together. We, well, I like we we've reached let, a point yeah. now where where it really feels like he's got nothing else he can do. They've they've cornered him effectively. The fact that that was so personal and the fact that he he wasn't able to save everybody, like it really now is going to eat at him. And that's it's so beautifully written. It's so and that is Boehm. That is Boehm realizing what pieces had to be in place to make I that final Stilson that thing. Look at really look at work. that weird, that weird narrow house that Johnny lives in. Uh-huh. I love that shot of him, you know, coming out. I think I go crazy just because of that billboard, man. I know. Yeah, it's some artistic license. The, the the symbolism of Stilson is now Looming. staring, staring directly at you, Johnny Smith. Uh huh. Oh, I love anything shot well with snow. Good lord, because I can only imagine how difficult it is to shoot something in snow and make it look nice beyond one take. <laughs> Walken does a good job also of making that limp really. Yeah. Go up and down depending on how pronounced he wants it to be in a scene. Yeah. Um, he can really hobble into a scene and make it dramatic, or he can kind of just play it. It's it's nicely done to to almost play as emotional barometer. Yeah, uh, the yeah, more yeah. he's limping, the more frantic he is. Yeah, and it's just good prop work. It's just him having a cane and using it well, you know. This looks very Pennsylvania, very sort of it looks Rust like I'm looking country. to find. Can you see one person of color in this crowd? Oh no, no. This is Toronto in the uh, early '80s, so yeah. But it definitely feels like steel country. It definitely feels. Yeah, yeah. This definitely looks like a small Pennsylvania town. Yeah, I like that these oh, are not yeah. Hollywood extras. Ohio, or yeah, yeah. just normal. You know, they're not meant to be bad people. They're just no. you know, people at a political rally. No, they, they just look like real people. Um, yeah, yeah. It's safe to say Stilson's a Republican, right? I think that's pretty safe to say. There was a Ronald Reagan photo on his wall earlier. So. Oh, right. Yep. I'm going to guess that's a yes. 
I uh, I had written down a bunch of rhymes for the title in case we got um like dull, like quiet and then I would have to break out like uh, the yo do you ever see that Stephen King film called The Bread Zone or um did you ever hear that Christopher Walken was too sexy for the right said Fred Zone. I did not. Uh, no, 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 no. You know what, what's no, really interesting? No, what's really interesting here is no. when he tu- when he touches him, he sees this horrible moment of you touch, you press the fucking button, Mike Pence, and and he's like, no. What if he just had a vision of like Stilson having a, a real hard shit one afternoon? Yeah. I, hey, then just walk away, man. It's all good. And I think that's what this is. He he realized I've got to go figure it out. I got to go see if Stilson's dangerous. Because he puts himself in his way. He makes sure he gets hand to hand. Look at him. Ugh. Look at this madman. He is having a ball, Martin Sheen, right here. Yep. Uh, and believe me, the uh, whoever would actually press that button would probably be this religious yeah. about it. I yeah, think oh, the yeah. only I, person who's going to press the button is somebody who thinks it's okay. God said yes. Oh, stop. he's crazy. Stop. Oh, he's, he's crazy there. And I love whoever his sidekick is. That guy says like three words in the whole movie. The big dark weirdo in the middle. But he's he's perfect. I like that he's standing directly in front of the fire. Yeah. He's representing. That guy is that guy's perfectly cast just because he looks like Demon Lurch there. Who's just shadowing Stilson for the whole thing. I can only imagine Sheen reading I can imagine Sheen reading this part in the script and going, oh, yeah, I'll do this movie. All right. But now, here, <laughs> now here's my only question. What room is this supposed to be? This, I don't know. This is your solution for it. We're not even going to try to make the White House. We'll just put the presidential seal over a fireplace. Well, all right. Let's, let's think about this. All right. We're both writers. And if this is the scene you're reading and you talk to the writers and you go, why, why this instead of not like the, the ready room? And they go, it's because he's doing it on his own. He's doing it without... You know, he, he's taking it upon himself. He's not really consulting with people. I like he's the artwork. Like, I like they the artwork on the mantle place. Yeah, they all look like Republicans. Maybe Camp David. And I, the, the the cutout line here. Yeah. <laughs> Birds are flying. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, yeah, he is great here. His hallelujahs on, at the end. I'm, are, I'm, uh, I'm on mute and I have no subtitles. So yeah, I'm his on. hallelujah, hallelujah is the yeah, icing yeah. on the cake. He is so nuts. And then, yeah, the, the rest of the book, the book sort of plays this out as a little bit more of a, a hunt and, and stalk. And it's got to solve the logistics of it's, it. You know, it's this really makes it interesting. pretty easy for him to get close to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I mean, now it's a political thriller, yeah. a supernatural thriller. It, it, it You know, it's a. A dark it's a horror film it's a thriller it's got you know well, all, all it ultimately of- hinges on look you can take you strip everything else out of this movie this movie boils down to the age-old question would you kill hitler if you could have killed hitler as a baby yep yep very true very true it, it, it lets us play through that that uh what if scenario on the movie uh, in the movie and not only that it comes up with a bittersweet really clever way to stop him. And I like the way it shows both the good and the bad of choices he's made leading up to posing that question, because you can make an entire thing out of just that question. But this really puts Johnny through the ringer and forces him into a place where 
By the time he has to make the decision about what to do about Stilson, he has seen good results from what he can do. He's seen bad results. He's been traumatized by it. He's lost things because of it. Like it, it costs him quite a bit before he ever has to ask that question. That is far more interesting than just a one note. Hey, I can see the future. Maybe I should go back and kill Hitler or, you know, I can see that this one bad thing is going to happen. This really lets it all play out before it ever asks you to, to try to grapple with that. Yep. Yep. It works on it's a cliche, but it works on a variety of levels. I also like it, that it Herbert all. keeps coming back, that that he leans on this this doctor yeah. who has become his yep, friend. They become friends. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that's and just he a believe, lovely he note. knows he knows he's telling the truth. He's like the, the one true true ally. That's he a good point. Really, that's that's yeah. there's no yeah, there's no buy-in here. This guy has to believe him. This guy's been through it with him. So, yes, that's that's a really good point as to why he can talk to him more than almost anyone. And Lom is so good here. He is. He is. He, a lot of times he's uh, very in films over the top and bombastic and, and uh, playing theatrically. Yeah. And here he's very quiet, very calm, and, and really excellent. I think sometimes people ask that of him, and Cronenberg's smart enough here to realize Herbert Lom's so interesting. He is, he just the way he speaks, the, his yep. delivery of things, and him and Walken together in a scene. He's, he's got a heavy voice, and when he shows some sweetness and humanity with that gruff exterior and that heavy voice, you're like, you know, it's really human. Neither one of them delivers the line anyway, the the way anyone else would. So you put these two against each other. This is a great conversation. I, I would love to see somebody try and do the the B-side version of the Dead Zone where all the visions he gets are good things that he helps people find lost love. And like, it, he found, you know, like that money he finds like uh, James Brolin from Amityville Horror. He's like, that money you lost, it's in the fireplace. You know, like. <laughs> I think I can make your business 35% more cash efficient. Wait, let me touch your hand. Uh, she's stealing from you. He's cheating on you. Oh, <laughs> There's this last, they they really take this last breath before they push Johnny up the cliff. Oh, and it's like, if you turn the movie on right here, it's about a psycho who wants to kill a politician. Yeah. That, that you can now be rooting for a gunman aiming Let's, at a politician. Is, that is disturbingly subversive that they want, yep. they're, they're putting you in a position to root for him to shoot a presidential candidate. Every, every, every time in American history that... There's been a notable assassination. It's been a great person. So therefore, the idea of a man uh, uh, pointing a rifle at a political figure has us cringe. Uh, but yet this movie does so much legwork to make it, no, no, we're, we're on his side and we know why. I guess I never really thought about that in context, about how ballsy it was for King at this point in American culture to write a film where he tries to get you to root for Johnny in that home stretch. But I wonder how that is a really crazy ballsy thing to do post Kennedy post. I mean, you know, this is we're we were still grappling with the traumas of having president shot or having presidential candidate shot or having American figures shot like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I you could see if this movie had never been made and this exact script was was going around Hollywood right now. Uh There'd be real concerns about like, okay, it's it's odd that our reluctant hero, uh, now we have him out to be a political assassin. And yeah, it makes sense in the context of the movie, but boy, it makes for bad optics. And therefore, like you said, it's a, it's a ballsy move. 
Yeah. I don't I don't think that this ending would come across this way if they wrote it if they produced this movie today. It would be okay, yeah, we you definitely have to find a way for Johnny to stop him, but it is not going to be with a rifle and an assassination. It would also be, you know, just looking at the clock, we have ten minutes until this thing's until we go home. This thing's over in ten minutes. Any other film, this would be the last thirty-five minutes, and it would be an elaborate set piece, and this would be oh, all about getting a, into the building and evading yep, yep. security, and then such how a great so, and you know, a security guard would stop him, and he'd put his hand on his shoulder, and he'd say, "Your mother, she's in the hospital now. She's dying. Ugh, she needs you." I'm and scared. He There's an awful remake of this that could happen. Yeah. That would be just awful. Now, notice even how his limp is is exaggerated when he lorps up the steps there. Mm-hmm. That's good acting, man. He doesn't forget that he has a pronounced limp when he's awkwardly lurching up the steps. Again, I think it's I think he's using it emotionally. It's like when Johnny is most distressed, when he's most upset, it really gets monster movie pronounced. This is a great shot. It's just a static shot of his stage and then people slowly forming in. Oh god. Yeah, this is a masterpiece. How did man. you get ahead of me? I, I missed I, I I paused it for a, by accident because I'm using my Xbox controller as a remote and you know uh-huh. how sensitive those fucking things are. Oh yeah. Right now I'm looking at Johnny as he just woke up as the crowd mills in downstairs. Oh, okay, I'm I'm a little bit behind you then. Yeah, there I'm yeah. just seeing the stage did I, and everybody. Did I spoil? Did I spoil the ending? You me? did. I didn't know what was happening. God damn it! I'm I quit. I quit this commentary. I'm storming out. Wait a second. I want to get Bobby's notes. How do I find? How do I? Oh, here it is. Bobby will sometimes text us notes during a recording, and he had some good ones. So I stormed out. What did Bobby notes say? Came in apparently did this score in three weeks. Damn. Uh, Nicholas Campbell, uh, the killer guy, went on to headline a seven-season run of Canadian television called Da Vinci's Inquest. I know what that. Sh- I've never seen it, but I know what that is. Is Sheen the best thing in Scorsese's Departed? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, I think a huge part of why Cayman never got nominated were his two best scores, Die Hard and Brazil, were largely built around pre-existing music, like Ode to Joy and Aquilaria. Uh, yeah, yeah. 100% like true about Brazil, and it's one of the things that drives me crazy about the Academy's rules is that is a beautiful piece of composition and arrangement that just can't be recognized because they don't allow anything that's based on earlier themes or music. So, Do you think it's slightly too convenient... I already have an answer, but do you think it's slightly too convenient that it's his lo- his ex love's child who is a little bit? Yeah, I think yeah. it's I think it's a really I, I think they spend enough time though setting up that they're part of the campaign, that they're right there, and that the husband is so on board that he would want his kid to be the one that still some kiss. Yeah, yeah. So I it feel is, like yeah. they did the legwork to justify uh, yeah, it. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It is it is a bit convenient, but not like oh come on. Yeah, you but know, I can see I can see that dad being like, make it my kid, my kid, put my kid on TV. Like I, he's really into this. But then poetically, you know, if I think the coincidence is worth it because it makes it more personal for uh, Johnny that he, you're not going to hurt my friend's kid, yeah. my love, my this woman's child. And yeah, when this thing gets down to it, this this oh, final. Here's the thing. The, the bigger love. version. The bigger this version. This misdirect, Drew. I'm sorry, but the misdirect is so fucking great. You think he failed, and he doesn't. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. 
you know, just the ending where he, he shoots him and like, all right, that's a, a good ending because he stopped him and maybe he gets shot in the process. So that's bittersweet. But to have that one extra beat where he doesn't shoot, where he doesn't kill him, uh, it's just wonderful. It's just such good writing. But the if you were to pump this up into a larger set piece, I think the danger is you lose what it is that, that goes on here. And Cronenberg is so smart about... He keeps this very small scale. He keeps this very simple. And the tension that he ratchets up here. Watch I, his eyes. I'm, a, I'm ahead of you. When she screams Johnny and he has the gun to his eyes, watch his eyes. Yeah. And Walken's buildup, his, his pushing himself to do it. He really plays the I have to oh. make myself stand up and do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's scared. He is not. Yeah. He is not like cocky here. <laughs> he is now dead. Ugh. Oh, and I, I, I didn't see this in theaters, but I could just imagine. I could just imagine the shot where he just misses him and then the sidekick shoots him. I could only imagine a full audience just going. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and the best part of the <laughs> shot is the lamp exploding behind him. Yeah, it's. The thing it, yeah, it shows that the bullet went through it. It's the thing that really sells that as a a a shocking moment. Like we've right, seen a lot of gunshots, but that explosion oh. behind him is awful. Look, the the gun barrel hiding what yeah. the image is. Well, here's where we're off sync. So yeah, and watch Stilson's final shot. There's nothing in in the background behind him. It's just blackness, like a nightmare. Yeah. You finished, right? It's a great ending. It's it's sometimes. And here's the thing, man. King. King is terrible at endings. Terrible. I. It may be. Histor- I, I wouldn't say terrible, but I yes. Would, it, there, I, would, there, I, would I, say, I would flat out say that he is a great storyteller who often has no idea how to end, end a story at all. I, I say often, but not always. But I, yeah, yeah. Not always, I, I, but I'm, I'm yeah. saying it is not one of his skills. He is he is weak with endings. So the movies of his, where I think the endings really work, this one, I know one of the reasons he got so crazy excited about The Mist was because Frank figured out an ending that was an ending. And yeah, yeah. It, it stands significantly apart from a lot of King's endings in how simply all the mechanics drop into place and pay Oh, off. God, this final scene breaks my fucking heart. Yeah. It's just beautiful. It really is. And, and the irony that he'll never be known as a hero. He knows that he did the right thing and he saved everybody, but he'll never be known as a hero. He'll always be known as that crazy guy who climbed up back and shot mm-hmm. him and ruined his career, but he was the bad guy and Stilson was just a politician. Oh, it's just so beautifully bittersweet and and touching. And I just want to thank filmmakers who allow for ambiguity and allow for tragedy uh, and and don't want to soften every blow and make everything so sweet and tidy. It would have been real simple for him to go to jail for five years and then get out. No, no, that's not how this story ends. And it's beautiful. Well, and also, dude, you don't need anything. The last thing you need is the shot of them crying and that's it. It's efficient. This is one of those 80s endings that we've talked about where it's like you are in the parking lot 44 seconds after she's crying over his dead body. 
I I respect that, man. You know when your movie's over and you're out. And there is an unadorned quality to the filmmaking here that I think makes it land even more. There's a fancy way to do this. There's a fussy way to do this. I'm going to beg right now on this commentary, please don't anybody ever remake this movie because I know how awful it will be. I can just, watching this version, I can see all the awful things you will do. Please don't. Drew, having said that, Having said that, okay, now uh, Univer- uh, Paramount calls you and says, we are remaking The Dead Zone, and we would like you and Scott to be consulting producers. We want to know who you would hire to direct a remake of The Dead Zone, because we I are go, making it. I go talk to Ari Oster. And, ah, and I would the ask, gentleman who directed Hereditary. Yeah, and I would ask him to um, keep it simple. I think there is a... I think the danger with this material would be to overdo it, would be to overdo you know any element of it, the visions having, or, to, or to overdo the violence or to overdo the the Stilson thing where you really want to build it for 30 minutes at the end. There's a million awful choices to be made with this material. What What's having, so beautiful is how lean this thing is. Uh, having just revisited Destroyer uh, last night, yeah, I would offer this to Karn Kusama. And I think, uh, you know, Hay and Manfredini, as her writers, they uh, they have a good thing going together right now. Yeah. Um, yep. That's a pretty and good if you've not If you've not seen Karin Kusama's The Invitation, that's mainly why. I, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that, that would be a good team as well. And look, I think there's plenty of opportunity. I'm excited to see what happens with Pet Cemetery. I think, you know, as we just talked about, I think that film was brutally miscast the first time. I think there's a lot of opportunity to make a yep. version of well, that that will the, really the, deliver. That's, that's the beauty of it, man. It's like a, a mediocre or so-so horror film can be remade as a great one. Yeah. And, you know, even this great movie was semi-remade as a very good TV show. It is possible. It is. I just, I would hope that as as film versions go, I think uh, Bohm and Cronenberg really distilled what was special in this right. book. Right, yeah, but you're, we're looking at that from a film critic perspective, which is, this is near perfect, you're not going to do better. Whereas a producer's version is, I want to make a good movie, that makes us some money, <laughs> you know, it makes well, my dick thank itch. You. I, I want to thank know. Bobby. I want to thank Drew. I want to thank every single listener, p- supporter, patron uh, who loves ADOs all over. We had a ball doing this and I will let Drew sign us out. Uh, we will uh, have plenty of amazing patron Patreon bonus content for you in 2019. We oh, have- we have. Can we can give me a little secret? Can uh, we give him a little? Give, give him a little taste. But yeah, there's uh, there's so many good people lined up. Uh, who's your favorite your, one of your favorite women from Better Off Dead we're now, we're now being interviewed two of the women from Better Off Dead we will be chatting with the amazing Diane Franklin very Yay. soon and one of our film critic slash podcast colleagues April Wolf from Switchblade Sisters will be joining us soon to talk about 80s horror films and uh, I'm, very exci- more- I'm very excited to say that we, we have filmmakers also in the, uh, also in the wings who, who will be coming in who Hopefully, we'll then kickstart even more people wanting to come in and sit down and talk about their bodies oh, of work. Yeah. So yeah, we can't. We don't want to mention those those guys until we get locked in. I think, yeah, I, but we, I think I think it's gonna be a good year. You guys who are already Patreon supporters, we appreciate you. We appreciate everything that you have done to kind of get us up and running so far. Yep. But without you, that, this would have been it would have been a three month experiment. Without people like re- immediately responding and immediately saying I love it, thank you, we would have done it for three months and said that was fun enough. Uh, And now, because people love it, we are committed, obviously, to the whole freaking enchilada. 
So uh, we will uh, we will continue that soon. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you later.